thank you for hanging out with me today. It's good to be here. Good to spend some time with y'all. Um, today we're going to be talking about motivational interviewing. Um, and if you've ever worked with me in a talk before, it's not going to be didactic style, lecture style. We're going to be chatting together, so I hope that's all right. Um, one thing I just wanted to ask at the outset, how many of you have had any training in motivational interviewing before? Raise your hand. Okay. All right, so it's fairly new for folks. Raise your hand if you're a student or resident at this point, still in training. Okay, cool. Uh, working internationally? Okay, working in some sort of clinic or medical stateside. Okay, cool. All right, well, I, um, my name is Danielle King. I'm a psychologist um, and have been working in... FQHCs or community health centers, um, but also have close connections with folks who are um, training for or are planning to move overseas to work um, internationally um, in healthcare. Um, and so, again, I just appreciate you guys uh, creating space for me to come chat with you today. Um, so we're going to be chatting about motivational interviewing. And to get us started, we're going to chat a little bit about... Um, hmm... Just kidding. Well, it's not special. <laughs> okay, so if you guys could tell me a little bit about a difficult patient, and what I mean by difficult patient, I want you to envision a patient who you really want good things for them, you really want them to be healthy, and yet everything you try to do they don't seem to be changing or they don't seem to take their medication. They don't seem to be doing the things that you think, if you would just do this, it would all get better. Are you guys all envisioning a person? Anyone want to describe, give me some examples of what that's looked like? You could say as simple as, my patient wouldn't take their metformin. Just throw out some things. Smoking, I'm not quitting. No, I'm not getting closer. No, okay, all right, smoking, perfect example. What else? Diabetes. Yep. Yep. Diabetes is remarkable about how much uh, self-management uh, is involved, right? Man, if I had diabetes, I don't know if I could keep up with all that. What else? What else are the things that we just feel like we're banging our head against the wall trying to get patients to do? Weight loss. Weight loss, for sure. For sure. Okay, so what we're going to be talking about today is hopefully some really practical um, ways of thinking, but also really practical tools or skills that you can use um, with patients um, to help promote their own management of their health. Um, and so hopefully that will be helpful today. Um, I like to this um, little cartoon. I'll give you a second to read it. Raise your hand if you've fallen into this uh, pattern before. Especially, especially in EHR, if we're having to check all the boxes, and I told them this, and I told them this, and I told them this, so then it's just like, blah, 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 so that I can close out my note and, and feel like I've done everything I was supposed to do for this patient, right? Okay. Um, and then, but effectively, what does that do? How do our patients hear that? How do they respond? Information overload, for sure. Yeah. I think sometimes they just feel guilty, too. They just feel guilty. Yeah. Yeah, 
I wouldn't, if I just hold, heard a whole, like, let's take another scenario. Like, how many of you are a parent? Well, I guess there's a young crowd. Like, if you went someplace and someone just gave you a long list of things that you need to be doing but not doing to take care of your kids. Oh, my gosh. Right? Or any other scenario um, for your job. If you had a meeting with your boss and he just read through ten things that you're supposed to be doing that you're not doing, how motivating would that be? Right? Okay. Um, so to talk about motivational interviewing, I feel like there are some um, presuppositions, some assumptions that, that we'll make, some things that would be helpful to understand before we can even talk about motivational interviewing. Um, and one of those things is ambivalence. And so what I'd like to say about ambivalence is that inside of each of us is a part of us that wants to change and a part of us that wants to stay the same. Okay? And that's true for all of us for just about every kind of decision that we make, right? There's a part of me that wants to stop drinking Dr. Pepper, okay? Really wants to stop drinking Dr. Pepper. And there's a part of me that really doesn't want to stop drinking Dr. Pepper, right? I love the sugar, and I love the carbonation, and I, I just like it, right? Um, and so that is normal. For everything that we do, there's usually a part of us that's like, yeah, I'm, that should change. That would be a good thing. That would be helpful. And there's a part of us that wants to stay the same. And um, later we're going to talk about change talk versus sustain talk. So sustain talk is, is the language around wanting things to stay the same. I want to keep doing the thing that I really enjoy doing. Okay. Um, next thing that we want to talk about is geography. Okay, where does change happen? Okay. So when we're talking about um, a patient who you've seen them ten times and they're still not checking their blood sugars, they're still not, you know, taking their insulin, they still haven't quit smoking, they still haven't stopped drinking, okay, what are we usually, what are the assumptions that we make about that patient? What's a phrase that you might say? They're not compliant. They're not compliant. Yep. What else might you say? Low motivation. Low motivation. Okay, good. Another one might be, they're not ready to change. They're not ready to quit, okay? Um, what, what are, what's a common theme with all of those statements? Where is the problem with all of those statements? The patient, okay? So the assumption with all of those statements is that it is inside the patient, that's where the problem is. They aren't ready. This is a trait about them. They um, are not motivated, um, they're not ready, they're not, um, they're just not there yet. So it's almost like we're saying there's something wrong with the patient. And what I'd like to say is geography is important. And that change, it does have to do with what's inside the patient, you know, um, what they're ready for. But I would like to say that that is not a static trait, but that it's dynamic. And that changes not based on the patient necessarily, but by the interaction between two people. Okay, so if I wanted you to stop drinking tea, okay, um, and you're like, nah, no, ma'am, um, then I could interpret that as she's not ready to stop drinking tea. Or it could be that her resistance is based on how I'm approaching her. Okay, so that's what I want you to think about. It's not so much, let's stop um, always thinking about what's going on inside the patient and what they're ready for, but more about how we're interacting and how is that impacting their readiness um, to change. Okay, so the space between us is what's important. 
Okay, stages of change. How many of you have heard of the concept of stages of change? Okay, what are the stages of change? Yep, pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and maintenance. Okay, so pre-contemplation, what does that mean? Yeah, pre-contemplate. So it's before they're even thinking it's a problem. I don't need to quit smoking. My grandma smoked till she was 95. Healthy as a horse. Okay. Um, contemplation. Oh, I should probably cut down on my drinking, but I'm not really ready to do that yet. What's preparation? Getting a plan together. So I have an aunt who loves to shop, and she says her favorite stage of change is preparation uh, in regard to exercise, because that's the stage where she gets to go out and buy new exercise clothes. Okay? So preparation is that patient who's like, I'm not ready to commit to say, yeah, I'm going to go to that rehab program, but I'll at least take the phone numbers, and I'll, I'll give them a call just to find out what they're about. Okay? They're preparing. They're thinking about it. They're doing some things to get ready. Okay. Um, action stage, what you'd think about. They're doing something. They're changing something. They're actively making a change. And then maintenance is six months or more of that change. And, of course, we like to think, you know, it makes us feel good to think of them as all linear, like it goes from this to this. But oftentimes it kind of can go back and forth a little bit. Okay. And that's normal. Okay. So talked about stages of um, change going down from I don't have a problem all the way to I'm working to maintain the changes I've made. All right, so motivational interviewing. Um, we can think about this in a number of ways. Um, I'll talk about general ideas and then give you some more formal um, definitions as well. Okay, so um, a style of interacting um, that elicits intrinsic motivation for change. So it's not us giving them motivation. It's us pulling it from them based on the way we're interacting. Okay. Um, it assumes motivation for change is malleable and built in the context of relationships. And this is what I was getting at with geography. Okay, it is um, their motivation or readiness for change is malleable. You can it can change. It's not a stuck, static thing. Okay, and the way that it changes is not by that person. I mean, it can be involved with them making a decision, but it's also a lot of it is how we are interacting, and that can bring about or elicit um, readiness for change. Motivation and resistance, on the other side, is the product of our interaction, okay? So when we're with patients, if we're finding ourselves feeling like we're hitting our head against the wall because there doesn't seem to be traction, there doesn't seem to be movement there, um, one thing that we should be asking ourselves is, how is my participation in this dialogue or this interaction contributing to their readiness or lack of readiness? How many of you would consider yourself a helper? Like you're a person, like you got into the health profession because you like to help. You like to fix. You like to, yeah, yeah. So I think that's what, we're going to talk about that a lot today, is that that's a good thing. We, we like to help, right? But sometimes when we approach it as trying to fix or help, we're actually going to um, have the opposite effect, right? The more we try to do, the less that person is going to be ready for that. 
Okay, so these are some um, technical definitions. So motivational interviewing is a collaborative, person-centered form of guiding to elicit and strengthen motivation for change. Um, it's a collaborative conversation about change that elicits motivation and commitment from the patient. Okay. How is this different from what we normally do? What are just some my thoughts that come to your mind? Status quo versus what this is describing. Yeah, we're pointing out what they're doing wrong. What else? We're telling, them we're telling them how to fix it. Do this, 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 and this. Okay. And, that, and again, as helpers, that's what we do. Like, you know, when our friend comes to us and they're like, I have this problem, this problem, we automatically want to be like, do this, and it will get better. That's, I think, person-centered. I think we're normally problem-centered. Ah, good. Yeah. And, and I think that's really true, especially when we think about um, how we define the problem. So, like, we may be coming in thinking, oh, my gosh, this person's A1C is 16 and their blood pressure was 190 over 100. And they're like, um, my wife just left me and I don't know what to do and I don't have money to buy my next drink, right? So their definition of the problem is going to be different from ours, and I think that's a, an important step to understanding um, their, level, their readiness. Okay, so I'm a big nerd, and I really like history, and I really like understanding the theoretical context of where things come from or where ideas come from. So we're going to look um, a little bit about history of psychology and where motivational interviewing comes from. Um, so how many of you have heard of Carl Rogers? Yeah, so um, unconditional positive regard, meaning, you know, we are – going to hold this person in high regard, have a care for them and love for them regardless of what they do, what they say, who they are, okay? Who does that sound like? Where else do we hear that from, right? Okay, so I think there's a good scriptural or theological foundation for that, that no matter who you are, what you're doing, this patient that's in front of me, I have a love for you, positive regard, okay? Also, within client-centered therapy is this idea that the answers are within the client. Again, it's not us giving them this special gift of how to be better. Um, they have got that um, within them. Um, self-perception theory. And I really think this is fascinating. Um, people tend to become more committed to what they hear themselves defend. Okay? So I want you to remember that, that we are wanting to get them to talk about change because the more they are talking about change versus us, the more they're convincing themselves, heck yeah, maybe I should do that the more that we're getting them to fight for that, um, the more that they will be ready to um, engage in that activity. Cognitive dissonance, um, inconsistencies between beliefs will cause psychological tension. Okay, so um, sometimes we'll get this to this later, but this idea of um, walking with a patient through um, and seeing that I hear that you say you want to exercise regularly um, and that's important to you but it's been hard to live that out, to do it every day. So kind of talking through in a patient-centered way um, the discrepancies between what their values are and what they're doing. Um, so Plato, Socrates, um, humans uh, have an innate knowledge which can be revealed by another person by um, asking specific questions, right? So that motivational interviewing, right? We're asking specific questions to get that knowledge out for them to not only have the knowledge, but also to be speaking about it. Because humans who come into knowledge versus being told are more likely to retain and build on that knowledge. Okay? 
And you see this in education, right? You know, when you're teaching your kids at home, it's one thing to just tell them, this is a verb, this is a noun, whatever, or this phenomenon in science. But if they can um, kind of come into that in a more natural way by asking questions, um, then that, they're going to learn that, retain that a lot better. Okay, and then reactants. Um, when freedom and choice are threatened, I will um, act to show that I still make my own choices. Okay, uh, I tried to insert a picture of my four-year-old here because she's like living, breathing proof of this. She's just got this giant mop of red curly hair. And if you tell her this is what's going to happen, she's going to do everything within her little, you know, fifth percentile body to tell you that you do not make decisions for her, okay? So, um, but I think this is true for a lot of us, right? If, if someone comes in and says, this is what you have to do, well... Is that so? Something in us is going to rise up and be like, well, I'm going to do it this way. Okay. Right. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. So the spirit of MI um, is collaborative. Okay. We are not coming in as the expert. We're not coming in as the person to tell them this is what you're going to do to get better. We are coming in as a um, partner a collaborator, co-collaborator, um, looking at their health together to figure out how we can help them move forward, okay? Um, it's evocative, right? We're evoking that from them, okay? We're asking questions to help them identify what it is they are ready to do and help them develop a plan to walk that out. Um, spirit of uh, MI is also based on autonomy, right? I don't know how many times I tell patients, um, like, you're in charge. When, I, when you go home today, I don't go home with you. I don't make your meals for you. I don't get your pills ready for you. We, you can tell me anything you want here, but ultimately, when you leave that, this room, you make your decisions for you. I don't. And so my goal is to empower you with information so that you can make the best health care decisions for yourself, right? Autonomy. They are the ones who are living their lives, and they get to make the health care decisions for themselves. And compassion. Um, I think anyone in this room would probably um, value this as well. It's just the sense of compassion that we are there to um, to help. And, and I think it's also helpful in this context to talk about compassion fatigue. Raise your hand if you've ever experienced, even to a small degree, compassion fatigue. Amen. Amen. Right? Um, yeah, it's a real thing, and I think um, that's a whole other conversation, right? self-care. Um, yeah, but I think compassion is a huge part of um, motivational interviewing. And I think especially if you think about the history of motivational interviewing, it was um, developed um, in the context of substance use, um, substance misuse. And so compassion fatigue can be pretty strong there. You can get pretty um, burned out on uh, after seeing patient after patient relapse or um, not sustained change over a long period of time. And so um, approaching that patient with the same level of compassion um, every single time. Okay, goals, hashtag goals. Um, so we're going to be trying to engage with the patient um, with the following kind of goals in mind. We're, we're going to avoid creating resistance. Okay, what's resistance? What does that look like? Um, 
Um, all right. All of you have to go to every single session in this whole conference, and you have to get up tomorrow morning and run at 5 a.m. Right? Tom? D- defensiveness? child is not sleeping and complaining, mm-hmm. that the child's not sleeping, you begin to tell them, well, maybe you should do this, mm-hmm. they often immediately become very defensive and they don't want to do that. Yeah. Because, well, it's really, you know, there's because there's something else back behind it that there's a baby sleeping with a little kind of like that. Sure, sure. Yeah, all sorts of reasons. So it's the yes, but. Yes, I could do the sleep hygiene techniques that you just told me, but there's this. Um, and we do this all the time. You know, your your spouse comes to you and they're like, hey, can you do this? Or I need you to do this. And you're like, well, but I've got da 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 You know, we all have these reactions. Um, but the yes, but is what we want to be listening for. Um, any kind of, you know, we could um, label it as excuse making, but any kind of um, resistance or, or pushback to that change. Um Eliciting self-motivational statements, so eliciting change talk, and we're going to talk a lot about this. Like, how do we get patients to be the ones to start talking about change instead of us being the ones to tell them about change? Creating a discrepancy between current behavior and the patient's goals or values. Okay, um, and we already mentioned that a little bit. All right, so um, some guiding principles. Um, we've got the acronym of RULE. Okay, we're going to resist the writing reflex. Who can tell me what the writing reflex is? This is a good one. Just to say, well, actually, you should. Yes. Um, so a patient tells you, um, okay, we'll, t- we'll take the smoker, uh, the patient who smokes. Well, my grandmother smoked till she was 98, and she lived a healthy life and didn't have any problems. What is your gut reaction to that statement? <laughs> no. no. Okay. You're, this this reflex to correct either information that's wrong or behavior that's wrong. And again, this comes back to this idea: we're all in this room because we are helpers. We want to help. We want to fix. Okay. And yet, our desire to help or fix sometimes um, puts us in a position where we're trying to. Is not helpful. We're trying to um, to right that wrong, but in doing that, it actually pushes them further away from being ready to change. So we got to resist the writing reflex. And I think it's important that it says reflex here because this is natural, right? Like it is a natural response for us to want to fix um, and want to right that wrong, and so we have to actively work against that. Understand your patient's motivation. I think we referenced this earlier about like. Um, you know, we may have an understanding of what the problem is that's very different from theirs. Um, and I think this is important. You know, you're talking about pediatrician. We're talking about adverse childhood experiences. What did that patient go through this morning before they even came into the clinic? Do they have power on at their house? Did they have to take three buses to get there? Um, did their husband beat them up before they came in? Okay. Um, their understanding of um, the problem their understanding of change, their understanding of motivation could be very different from yours. And if we don't first hear them where they're at, they'll never be ready to talk about what, what we're seeing as the concern. Um, comes brings us to listening to your patient. 
How many of you have 15 minutes with your patients typically? Yeah. Um, it's hard, right? We already talked about checking boxes and, like, we've got to do all these things to um, meet our HEDIS measures and UDS measures and all these things that we have to do um, and get a spiritual conversation in. It's just a lot. And so the idea of sitting and listening might cause a little bit of heart palpitations, right? If I sit here and listen for two minutes, then I'm going to be this much farther behind on all these other things. Um, empowering your patient um, and supporting self-efficacy. Okay, so when we hear that change talk in our patients, need, uh, when we hear that change talk in our patients, we need to be the one to really validate, uh, reinforce anything that we hear that they're ready to do. Support that self-efficacy. Okay, this is a little image that I think is helpful when we're resisting the writing reflex. Okay. Um, ORS. I'm going to be honest. ORS is a, a section that I think is helpful. It's an um, important part of motivational interviewing. Um, in the type of healthcare setting where I work, um, it, it isn't always, um, it doesn't always fit in as well. This is one section that um, we're going to be focusing more on the summarizing, and um, this bottom section. If you went into every, how many of you work in primary care? Okay. Um, if you went into every primary care appointment and opened it up with, how are things going? How would it go? <laughs> so I think there are some contexts where open-ended questions are very helpful and important, um, but some contexts where some of the other tools of motivational interviewing are going to be more readily available um, and helpful. Affirming, so obviously just affirming when we hear those um, areas of change talk, validating those, reinforcing those. Reflecting, just reflecting back what the patient is saying to you. Okay? And I think this comes back to not only listening to our patients, but helping them feel like we've listened to them, helping them feel like they've been heard. Um, summarizing, this is another way to help them feel heard, right, is to summarize what they've told you. Um, and then there is room for giving information and advice within motivational interviewing. Um, we're just going to do it in a nuanced way. Okay, we're going to talk about some skills, not non-check skills, but some other skills. Um, hopefully they'll be probably more helpful than non-check skills in the clinic or in healthcare settings. We'll see. Um, okay, so one thing we're going to want to do is match interventions with a patient's readiness for change. Okay, so let's um, take a patient who is, okay, Becky, you're pre-contemplative about, uh, or let's say you're, you're, yeah, let's say you're pre-contemplative um, about um, taking your um, insulin. Okay, so give me an example of what you might say if I say, hey, Becky, you should be taking your insulin. Perfect. It's such a real-life example. That really happens. <laughs> um, so if I were, would it be a good match if I said to Becky, um, like, well, we've got to come up with a plan to get you on your, um, your insulin. Would that be helpful? No, that would be, what's that? They don't want to take it, right? So one of the skills that we need to have is to recognize where they are as far as readiness 
and match our interventions to that. So if someone was pre-contemplated, what might be a more helpful intervention? With that? Do you know why it's good? Okay, so you could ask some questions, um, kind of learn more about that, or and maybe even before why insulin is good for you, maybe ask questions about what what are some of your biggest fears, like um, kind of um, open that discussion up more to find out what their fears are and give space for that. Um, another thing might be just to validate autonomy, kind of that whole conversation I um, told you about earlier, like hey, I, I, one thing I want you to know before we go any further in our chat today is that you're in charge, okay? I can't tell you what you should do for your health. My goal is really just to empower you with some information, and then you can use that information in whatever way is helpful for you to live the healthiest life possible. And I think if you want to have conversations about your family and their health and um, how that plays into your decisions, that would be awesome. Let's do that. Okay, so we're um, so that might be an intervention that matches their readiness for change. So let's say you have someone who is more contemplative, or, or maybe they're in the preparation stage. Um, they're like, "Yeah, I'm ready to start exercising more. I think that would be really good for me. I'd like to do that." Um, what might be some interventions you could use then? You start asking them what they what they like to do, or if they've exercised in the past, what they've enjoyed doing. Love it. Yes. And what is that an example of? I'll give you, you are eliciting change talk. You recognize change talk, and then you're eliciting more of it. You're asking them to expound upon, you know, hey, what kind of exercise would be fun, or where would you go? It's also helping them develop kind of a plan to move forward. Um, I didn't mention, um, in, for a patient who is pre-contemplative or contemplative, um, kind of this illicit... Um, Illicit, provide, illicit approach. Have you ever heard of that phrase in your training? Illicit, provide, illicit? No? Okay. We'll, we'll talk about that more in a few minutes. Be ready. <laughs> um, asking permission. How many of you ask permission before you give patient education? Yeah. Cody, give me an example of how you might do that. Um, it sounds like you're thinking about putting smoking as a Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Or if it was a really tough conversation. So, like, Becky, whose family member died after taking insulin. Wow, it sounds like that was um, a really scary time for your family. And probably just the, hearing the word insulin is probably pretty scary. Would it be all right if I shared a little bit of information about what I understand insulin does and, and how it works in the body? And if, if you disagree, that's totally fine. Is it okay if I just share a little bit of information? Asking permission. Um, and just by, I've never had, I talk to patients about lots of really difficult things, and I've never had a patient say no. But in the process of saying yes, inevitably, they're, psychologically, they're kind of opening themselves up to be more open to what you have to say because they are giving you permission. Um, using a menu. What would using a menu look like? When you're working with a patient, yeah, giving people options. Um, so this might come a little bit after, like, it could come in a couple of different contexts. So if you've already given patient education on some options for 
interventions, you might say. So we've talked about a couple of things today. We've talked about, you know, for your depression, you could use exercise, you could use medication, um, we could get you in to see a counselor. What do you feel like might be a good fit for you today, or do you just want to think more about some of these options? Um, So you're giving them a menu of options to choose from instead of this is what you should do. It's exactly what we do with our toddlers, right? Do you want the red pajamas or the blue pajamas? Instead of put your pajamas on, okay? Um, You're giving them choice, and that's engaging them more in the conversation and making them feel more ownership, sense of ownership in the decision. Okay, elicit, provide, elicit. So this is like a classic patient education um, strategy. And the way it would work is the, the first elicit is, um, hey, what do you know about diabetes? Tell me what, what you've heard so far. Okay, you're getting them to say the information that they already know. And this is helpful in a couple ways, right? We don't always know what our patients know. Sometimes I'm shocked at how much they know, right? And they are able to spit out to me exactly what they should be doing. And it would have been ridiculous for me to have said all that because they already know, okay? So, um, and then the next step is to provide. So once they say, well, I know that I'm supposed to do, you know, eat right and take my metformin. So then you might be able to say, oh, right, those are perfect. Now, when you say eat right, is it okay if I go over a few details about what that might look like, okay? So you're eliciting from them what they already know. Then you're providing a little bit of information. And then the second elicit is, so out of those options that we talked about or the things that we said, was there anything that struck you as something you're interested in or that you would want to try or that you think, oh, I should be doing that? Um, Make sense? Elicit, provide, elicit. And this can be used in so many different ways, but that's just one example. Develop discrepancy. Um, And we talked a little bit about this before, um, but this idea of, this is true for all of us, right? We have values here, and our actions are here. Like, I have a value that my house would be spotless every day. Okay, but I would just love that. It would be beautiful. Do my actions line up with that? No. Normally, I just put that thought out of my mind. I don't want to think about that. But if I sat down with someone who cared about me and I felt like they respected me and they were like, hey, I noticed that you're always saying, oh, you want a clean house, but instead of cleaning, you watch Netflix after the kids go to bed. Okay, so having those conversations can help highlight that discrepancy and engage a patient in conversation. Um, and I will say this this step um, takes a little bit of finesse, right? It could be done really poorly. Well, you say you want to lose weight, but you're still eating a tub of ice cream on the couch, right? That's not helpful. Okay, so highlighting discrepancy in a respectful, um, uh, kind of patient-centered way. And most of these examples that I'm giving today are real life, just to let you know. <laughs> um, okay. Recognizing change talk. Here's the thing. Sometimes, many times, change talk is wrapped up in sustained talk. So what we normally hear is, I don't want to change, but if I did, well, first, what we hear is, I don't want to change. But if you listen closer, what they're saying is, I don't want to change, and I would only change if da-da-da-da-da. There's change talk there, okay? That second part. 
So, oh, you, you're not wanting to change right now. I think I heard you say you might change if such and such. Tell me more about that. So recognizing change talk is important. Another example of this might be, I really want to, um, you know, get off this blood pressure medicine, um, but I, I just um, can't exercise. Okay. Ah, you want to get off of blood pressure medicine. You're wanting things to change. So just be aware that you're, what you hear first um, may be that they're wanting to stay the same, but there might be a little gem in there that you could pick up on of change talk and then ask them to say more about that. Pull it out of them. Okay. So we're not only going to recognize change talk, but we're going to try to elicit it from them. Okay, so there's some different ways you could do that. What, what are some ways you might do that? So let's say you recognize a little hidden gem of change talk in there. What might you do in response to get them to talk more? Yeah, so a reflective statement or a summary of some kind. Just repeat it back to them. Reflect it back to what they've said um, and let it sit there for a moment. What else? Perfect. Open-ended question. Yeah. Um, can you say more about that? I, he I heard you say this. Can you say more about that? I think you were going to say something. Yeah, just, you know, youngster trying to help them with depression or something, or weight loss, and say, well, uh, what is it that you might, you know, do you think you could exercise? Yeah, I think you should exercise. Well, what do you think you, what sorts of exercises do you like? What, what things do you enjoy? Perfect. Do you think you could do that? Perfect. Do you think their patients are used to that response, or do you think they're more used to providers picking up on the but, like the, the sustained talk? So if I were to say, um, I want to start exercising more, but I'm so busy, most providers, me included, would jump on the, oh, but you can't be that busy. There might be more time over here, or there might be more time over there, when really... Let's talk more about, oh, you want to exercise. What do you like about exercising? When's the last time you did it? What kind of exercise did you do? When did it fit in? Okay? So um, usually when I'm talking about ambivalence, I, I go through a little spiel, and I guess I'll insert it here. So if inside of all of us is one part of us that wants change and one part of us that doesn't, okay, if the provider starts talking about change, what does the patient automatically swing to? Don't, yeah, don't want to change, sustain talk, stay the same, okay? And this is just human nature, depravity, right? That's just the way it is. If someone, um, you know, I have both sides of me, part of me that wants to quit Dr. Pepper, part of me that doesn't. So if Jessica comes to me and says, Danielle, you know, you shouldn't be drinking that Dr. Pepper. You know how much sugar is in there? Uh, da, 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 da. What am I automatically going to swing to? But, da, 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 da. Um, and so, what's that? I love sugar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so we're wanting to not be the ones talking about change, if at all possible. You are wanting to get the patient to talk about change. And you do that by asking questions. Don't be the one to talk about change. 
I mean, sometimes, yes, like ask if it's okay if I give you some information. Okay, but generally, don't be the one talking about change. Um, so open-ended questions, you were mentioning open-ended questions. These are some examples. What might you want, uh, want to make this, why might you want to make this change? If you did decide to make this change, how would you do it? What are the three most important benefits that you see in making this change? How important is it to you to make this change? So again, these questions are going to get them to talk more about change instead of you talking about it. Another way to elicit change talk is with um, rulers, okay? So on a scale from 1 to 10, how important is it for you to um, take your blood pressure medicine? Okay. So um, what's your name? Jeannie. Jeannie. Jeannie, how important is it for you to take your blood pressure medicine from scale of 1 to 10? Or 1 being like not very motivated uh, or not very important to 10 being like this is the most important thing in my life? Five. Five. Okay. Why, why wasn't it lower? Why wasn't it a 2? Because my health is kind of important to you. Your health is important to you. Tell me more about that. I want to live a long life. Let's give a round of applause for our wonderful patient. You just, it was perfect. You set it up so well. Okay, so one way to respond to these questions, let's say you have a real snarky patient or just a real honest one, and they're like, a one, you know, it's just not important. Oh, it was a one. Why, why wasn't it a zero? Because what does that do? It forces them to say what tiny, 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 minuscule part of them wants to change. Okay. On a scale from 1 to 10, how confident are you that you can take your blood pressure medicine? And then that could open up some more conversations about um, problem solving, that sort of thing. Another question, follow-up question, so why not a lower number is a classic one, but um, what would make you move to a higher number? Okay, so you're a five. Um, I've already asked you why wasn't it lower. You said because my health is important to me. Um, so then I could say, uh, what would make you move to a higher number, theoretically? If it was easier. If it was easier. Oh, tell me more about what that would look like. What would it look like it, for it to be easier to take your blood pressure medicine? Well, maybe if I put a reminder in my phone in the morning. Put a reminder in I'm going to bring you to all my talks forever and ever. So great. Um, yeah, so rulers can be very helpful um, in, in listening change talk. Um, so this says a little bit more about them. Um, why not lower? Why did you give yourself a four instead of a two? Um, identify barriers by asking what would make you move to a six instead of a four. Um, and then reflect ambivalence. So you'd like to stop smoking so that you can breathe better, but you worry you won't be able to cope with the stress in your life without a cigarette. And I think um, this can be helpful. I think, um, I think it's just helpful for us to be honest human beings with other human beings. To be like, yeah, I hear you. You're wanting this, but this is the other side of it. And I think validating that real human experience is helpful. 
you know, you talk about pediatrics and vaccines. So I hear you want your kids to be healthy, but you've heard all these things about what vaccines can do to your kids. I think if we just dismiss 100% um, and don't listen to the fears or the barriers, um, then we've lost some folks, right? Um, So reflecting ambivalence, I think, can be helpful. So respond to change talk. So when we hear it, what can we do? We've already talked about we can elicit more of it, right? Encourage, reinforce, give them information. If it seems like they're ready in that preparation stage, um, let's say they're in the contemplative stage and we gave them a menu of options. And one of I always make one of the menu options think more about the things we've talked about today because I think we skip over that too often. We don't think that's a real intervention. And I encourage you, I even do this in my documentation because – I think part of us, we feel like, oh, in EHR, I have to be able to document that I did something for them, okay? And so this is what you can say. You can say, provide a patient education about such and such, evaluated patient's readiness for change, um, patient um, identified that their next self-management goal is to think more about the strategies discussed today. That is an intervention. It's real, legit. You can go home feeling proud of what you did, okay? I love it. Yes, yes. Especially, I mean, our conversation earlier about adverse childhood experiences or just the amount of trauma in our communities, um, recognizing that in this moment you've got a screaming kid in the room with you. Maybe later today when the kids are in bed and you're sitting down, that would be a great time to think about it. Um, So responding to change talk, you can ask them to elaborate more, um, tell me more, say more about that. Um, You can affirm it, like, wow, you're really starting to put a plan together here for this. Um, You can reflect back. Um, Sounds like you're thinking of making a change. Um, Summarizing. So this would, we could think of this as, like, collecting up the change talk. Okay, all the little pieces of change talk that you've heard, you're going to summarize that for them. And it's going to be so inspiring for them, they're going to be changed forever. Um, No, but you're going to collect all those little pieces, those little pockets of change, and summarize for them. Um, And that can be a really helpful way to um, continue that conversation about um, change. Um, And at the end of that, you could even use phrases like, let me make sure I've got this correct. And then you say it, summarize it. Is that correct? Um, And then what else would you add? So just kind of, again, continuing the conversation about change, getting them one step closer to thinking about a plan. Um, Give permission to disagree. Um, I think this is really important. And um, one thing that I do quite often is when I give, like, a handout patient education um, is I'll say, what do you think about taking this home with you? When you come back, Tell me the things you agreed with on it, the things that you disagreed, the things you thought were awesome, and the things you thought were terrible. Give them permission to not be 100% on board with everything that you recommend, and give them space, a safe space, to share that. 
Okay. Why do you think that's helpful? Yeah, if they have homework related to it. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is freeing when I know that I don't have to come back and just be gung-ho about everything that was said. If there's space for me to agree with some things and disagree with other things, I'll be more likely to engage in that conversation in the future. It's kind of like if you go into a conversation with a family at Thanksgiving and you know about politics and you know that their whole goal is going to be to have one outcome, that you have to agree with everything that they say about politics. Are you going to want to have that conversation? No. No. I don't recommend that for Thanksgiving. Just PSA. <laughs> Anytime. Yeah. Uh, permission to disagree is helpful. Um, here's another one. This is one last tool that I think is helpful when someone is in the preparation stage. So let's say they've developed a plan. They're like, yes, I want to exercise. I'm like, sweet. How often do you want to exercise? Seven days a week for an hour. Okay. Wow, that's a lot. What do you think about that? You feel like that's really doable? What are you thinking? How are you feeling about that? Okay. Um, or even if it's... It is reasonable. Let's say they're like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exercise for like 30 minutes two times a week. Wow, that's amazing. Are you sh- now I want to make sure, does that feel doable? I know you've got a lot going on right now. Okay. By me trying to kind of step back a little bit, what does it get them to do? They're kind of reversing the period desire to disagree with your recommendation. Yeah, yeah. So it's getting them... Um, to engage in change talk. It's getting them to argue for change. No, I can change. I could do that. I think that could fit in. I could do this and this and this to make that work. Okay? Or, um, if it really is too much, they might be like, yeah, maybe I should cut it down to my goal being such and such. So either way, win. Okay. Uh, roll with resistance. That's the old school phrasing, newer phrasing, dance with discord, either way. Same idea. Um, The idea is if you hear yes, but, roll it on back. Stop what you're doing, okay? Um, If you try to keep going, they're not going to hear one word of what you say. So just roll back. So can anyone give an example of, the real life, when you're working with a patient, what's an example of someone who just was not ready to talk about what you were talking about? going to listen, not ready for that. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Different value system. Um, So he was saying, uh, Dr. Young was saying, um, a a teenage uh, girl who's in a sexual relationship and does not want to talk about abstinence or... Abstinence or getting out of that or maybe, you know, do you realize that that's probably not the problem? Okay. 
And so what would be an example of rolling with resistance for that? And what would be an example of plowing straight through that resistance? From anybody. Adolescent, female, uh, high-risk sexual behavior. Okay, pond through Yeah. Well, did you know that... Da, 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 right? What would be an example of rolling with it? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I love that example of um, kind of eliciting change talk as far as, like, um, let's talk about what this would look like down the road in five years and ten years, you know, what are... Uh, kind of play the tape forward type thing. Um I think there could be some steps between, I like sex, I'm not going to change that, and that, so, again, this comes back to where the the dancing, you're kind of feeling it out, it's not an exact science. Um, You might start out with, oh, so you're really enjoying this relationship. What are the things you like about this relationship? What's fun for you? Um, Kind of engage them on what their value is in that. Because they will not hear you if you have not heard them yet. If you're not at least making an effort. What's that? What's working for this? Yeah. Yeah. What's working for it? Yeah. Totally. Mm-hmm. I'll give you another example. I walked into a room the other day, and the, and the provider said, hey, can you talk to this patient about their drinking, their alcohol? And so I go in and introduce myself and... Sounds like Dr. So-and-so was hoping we could chat a little bit about health behavior, specifically about alcohol. Um, I don't need to talk about that. I don't want to talk about that. We're not talking about that. Okay? (laughs) So then I was like, oh, okay, cool, cool. Okay, great. Um, And then, so I'm just rolling with it. And I was like, is there anything that you would like to talk about? These are kind of some things that I do here in the clinic. I'm just another member of the team. And I work with patients on lots of different things, and I give some examples. Anything um, that I listed that is important to you? And she's like, sleep. I just can't sleep. And then we had a nice, beautiful conversation about sleep that happened to slip in there how alcohol impacts sleep. Okay? So rolling with that resistance, finding out what that patient values, and going with that. Was that a written? Yeah. In your mind, is it um, truly situational factors, or is there a part of it that's the patient's motivation is involved? Yeah, I mean, he definitely controls the relationship, so there is some motivation involved, but he feels passive. He feels Yeah. Examples of how you might respond. Like 
So summarizing what you've heard from him, like, wow, you want to cha- you're wanting to eat healthier, have um, better controlled blood sugar, um, but you also at the same time have these factors going on, and then um, kind of exploring and problem solving about what would it look like to have a little bit more influence over your situation. In an ideal world, what would that look like? Um, and then kind of problem solving from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're kind of summarizing ambivalence, problem solving. And it's sometimes it's hard to say exactly what direction you'll go because it is that dance. You're kind of saying, okay, if I try this summary, how does he respond? And then where do I go from there? So choose your own adventure type thing. We don't know the end of the story yet. Um, so a couple notes I have here about rolling with resistance. If you hear yes, but, then stop immediately. Whatever you're doing, cut it off. Um, empathize with the concern. Smoking is difficult. So I guess with our gentleman patient that we're talking about, like, some empathy. Like, you have a very difficult, um, rigid work environment, and your wife has been the one to cook, and she has her own way of doing things um, and cooking. Validate autonomy. You're 100% in, in control. Not necessarily in that case, but um, with other, other patients. If you could change it, what, what would be some things you'd like to change? For this gentleman back here? Yeah, yeah like that. Yeah, no, I like, yeah. Get him to just uh, brainstorm a little bit or, or you know, mm-hmm. sky bust a little bit about what he might like, and then maybe something could trip up in his head about, uh, you know, well, I, you know, I think, gosh, if, you know, maybe she could just use less butter or something, you know, and he could mm-hmm. kill him about mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, I think anything that gets them exploring ideas of change is great. Um, Because like you said, um, there's this phrase when I'm talking to parents about parenting interventions and behavior problems. You know, even the worst behaved kids mess up sometimes and do the right thing, and we want to, like, praise them for it. Even the most resistant patients mess up sometimes and talk a little bit about change. And so you're going to catch it, they're going to capitalize on it. Focus on what the patient is motivated for. Okay, so some resources. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit more, and I didn't have as much time to find um, some research on international settings, but my basic understanding and the little bit of um, articles that I looked at was just that it is uh, cross-culturally relevant um, in a number of different um, ethnic and cultural contexts. Um, and then also there is this program called Project Miracle. It's applying motivational interviewing with refugee populations. And I think the literature is just very um, kind of early in its infancy. So there's not a lot of data to say, this is great in this culture. But um, there are some folks looking at that. Thank you for your time. Any questions? I'm happy to hang out for a few minutes, too, and chat. Great question. I don't. Are power? Would, do we submit powerpoints to be? Do they go on the website? I will try to find out. I'm happy to take your email um, and then send you. Yeah, I don't know how they. 
I think it's a great question. So um, are you familiar with CCHF? Yeah, so I did a talk um, a couple years ago about that question of motivational interviewing and spiritual care conversations. And I think there's a lot of room for application, um, simply because a big part of the question about spiritual care conversations in healthcare settings, at least in Western culture, is concerns about power, differentials, and ethical concerns. And so I think motivational interviewing um, cuts through some of that because you're assuming that you are co-collaborators, you're approaching it on equal footing, and you're exploring what those pati- the patient's values are around that topic. And so um, I think just like you might say, um, what, what are your values around your spiritual life? What do you think the next steps are? So, yes, I think there are. And in fact, there's one article that I read that explicitly talked about that application. Thank you for your interaction and engagement. It was fun. Yeah.